Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, broadcasting from my home studio in Westchester County, New York. Joining me today is Danielle Bruno, CEO of West Coast fine casual restaurant Tender Greens. Inspired by meals shared with friends, two chefs and a foodie, Tender Greens was founded in 2006 with the mission to change the way people eat for the better. Each of its 30 locations are led by executive chefs preparing reasonably priced and unique foods. Remaining continuously innovative, Tender Greens shifted its business model to produce grocery boxes filled with meal essentials ready for delivery in light of COVID-19's impact on the restaurant business and the ability for everyday consumers to access groceries. Danielle's retail-focused career from Macy's and Dry Bar to Apple and now Tender Greens has led her to become a purpose-driven leader in the space advocating for gender parity and actively working to address unemployment among foster youth. Her impact and dedication are an inspiration for me, and I'm personally very excited to learn more about her journey today. So Danielle, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm actually at my office in LA, which until a month ago was a karaoke bar. Your office was a karaoke bar? It used to be a karaoke bar. Now it's my office. I love it. (laughs) Not to go off on a tangent, but I'm known for that. But Was it an active karaoke bar? Yeah, I built it to be a karaoke bar. In the old world, it was a karaoke bar, but it's now my daily office. I guess you could do virtual karaoke if you really had to. I have. I mean, it's still sometimes seconds as a karaoke bar. It's just I haven't quite been in the mood. So was the karaoke thing, I'm just fascinated now because of course nobody told me about this. Was that just kind of like me going for a run in the morning? It's like a way to decompress and it's just something that's fun. Is it a personal passion of yours? Is it? Yeah. I had this garage that we were trying to determine if we wanted to convert into just like a storage space. And, you know, we talked about, you know, putting in some cabinets and making it nice. Around that same time, I was spending a lot of money at karaoke bars. And so I decided one day to actually design a karaoke bar into the space. It's a full bar with a karaoke screen and all the equipment. I love that your quote unquote vice is karaoke. Like that. It is. <laughs> it's a great vice to have. You know what? It's never been put that way, but that's exactly what it is. Well, yeah, because, you know, what could go wrong, right? It's like, <laughs> that's awesome. Karaoke can bring the world together. I just, you know, it's been a little depressing. So I haven't like, taken it for as many spins, but it's subject for another podcast, I guess. Yeah. No, no. I love that. So we're going to, we'll park that and we might, we might revisit it later. Okay. So I'm absolutely fascinated by your career path. First of all, you chose one of the hardest. Every time I think I'm in, the, I'm in like one of the hardest professions, I meet folks like you. I mean, retail's tough. Retail's tough in good times. It's especially difficult and probably the most difficult time ever, and at least in, in our very young history. You know, and it's really hard now, but you've worked at Macy's. You were, and maybe I'm overstating this, I don't think I am, but one of the principal forces behind the launching and the design of the Apple Store, right? I was on the team that helped create that, yes. Okay. I like how humble you are. I love that. <laughs> and you also worked at Dry Bar, not worked there, but helped obviously scale and expand. And actually, that was one of my favorite, I believe that the founder was on How I Built This, and it's one of my favorite How I Built This episodes, because she talked about how she originally started just going to people's houses and because they wanted her to do a blowout for her friends, right? Yeah. And she's like, actually, there's a business here. <laughs> so Exactly. It's the quintessential like rags to riches business story. It's amazing. 
Yeah. And she seems like an amazing person as well, at least listening to the podcast. So you've had all these varied experiences. What has each or in aggregate those experiences, what have they done for you to lead you to be the CEO and the ultimate visionary for Tender Greens? Well, you know, before I started in retail, I went to school for social psychology. So I got my undergrad in social psychology. I later went back to school. But I think I really went into that field because I'm incredibly curious about what motivates and drives people. And so when I started in retail, my first job out of college, I meant for it to be sort of a job to help pay off some of my school loans while I found another job, like a lot of people. And it turns out that I was good at it. And I think I was good at it for the same reason that I was drawn to psychology in the first place, which is just all retail and really the service business and the restaurant business. All it is, is one group of people who desire a product and who are incented to purchase that product and another group of people who are motivated or hopefully intended to help those people. And what success looks like in the retail world is a lot of people want a product and those people get that product in a way that makes them very happy. And really that's just about, again, people and motivation and incentives. And so once I realized this, I don't think I realized it that literally for many years, but once I realized that I was good in this field and I really enjoyed it and you know I felt a lot of satisfaction on a daily basis, I just kind of stuck with it. And that turned into not just looking at what incents people to help other people or what incents people to buy things, but just what does leadership look like? When are people operating at their best? What kinds of organizations are successful and why? And I just made a real study of it. And it just, I, I grew my career around that. I also grew my career around learning every functional division. So, and I wanted to learn everything about marketing. I wanted to learn everything about HR. I wanted to learn everything about operations and production. So at every company, I had the opportunity to play many roles. And I feel very fortunate for that because it's, it would be hard to do it another way around. But at Apple, I worked in probably five or six different roles. At Pete's, I worked in five or six different roles. And it really gave me the ability to understand the organization more globally, always with the eye to like, what if I continue to grow and eventually lead this? Like, how would my understanding of these different functional aspects of the business help me do that? And so it's just been really, I've just been a student for a very long time. Yeah. And I, I like how you talk about having to be immersed in each functional area because it only hardens you and prepares you to be able to lead the whole, right? Yes. Yes. It's literally walking in their shoes. Do you think that there's a big difference or what is the degree of difficulty between, you know, you're, you've been in RN food, retail, electronics, beauty, apparel. I mean, you, you've hit so many verticals of the, inside retail. Either you're a glutton for punishment or you're incredibly <laughs> curious as a person. I'm incredibly curious as a person. And whenever somebody brings up those differences between the various industries, it always catches me off guard a little bit because for me, they're just people industries, people selling stuff to other people. The product for me is secondary to it. I mean, the only quality about the product that I really think about before joining a company is like, is it the best in class version of that product? And, you know, is there a brand and a loyalty associated with it? Other than that, it's people selling stuff to, to other people. And we're in this moment right now to state the obvious, but I think it's worth talking about where retail in particular has been devastated. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you hopeful for? What are you fearing when we return slowly back to business? You have 30 stores. I think you've got two in New York, right? 
And I fully admit I haven't been, but I will after this. And when I'm allowed to, I will be there. I promise. Great. I'll hold you to it. Just tell me how you're feeling right now and what's going through your mind. And we'll talk a little bit about what Tender Greens is doing under your leadership, but just in general, what is it that's dominating your thoughts, both in positives and negatives overall for retail, not just about Tender Greens, but just in general? Gosh, I mean, the notion of what's dominating my thoughts is a little daunting because probably like a lot of people, I just feel like there's just these racing series of different thoughts and fears and trying to hold them in one place or capture them. I mean, I've been trying to write so that when I come back to this, I'll be able to put it together in some meaningful way because it just feels really amorphous right now to me. But I think, you know, retail has had a tough time for many, many years because as people's lives have gotten busier, it's a lot more convenient to purchase things online. And so I think retail has been going through an identity crisis and trying to re-emerge as sort of an experiential opportunity and so on for a long time. And and so retail's really, you know, been struggling. And for a lot of shopping centers, the solution to that was doing things like adding services like blowout bars or restaurants, because those are the kind of businesses that actually get people to walk into the center or the mall or or whatever the, the shopping experience is. So that's been really great in terms of co-tenancy and businesses working together. The challenge is all of these businesses now being hit so hard at the same time, it's going to make it really, really difficult because not only is my restaurant's success based on everything that we do, which as you mentioned earlier, I mean, the operations of running a restaurant are incredibly difficult. There's so many things outside of one's control, whether it's you know happening at the farm or along some part of the distribution channel or, or a customer walking in and there being some issues. There's a lot of factors out of our control. And margins are delicate, right? And margins are delicate. But even if we do everything right, and we're one of the people who survive this, we are still pretty dependent on things like co-tenancy and the kind of businesses that surround us. I mean, our most successful locations, and I would say my most successful locations at Drybar, at Pete's, at Apple, I mean, these are the places where people gather and where there's activity and energy. And we all benefit from that. And so my answer to you is I'm very afraid for retail and restaurants and service businesses because together we survive and together we fail. And we kind of all have to get back in the game at the same time for momentum to continue anywhere near the way it was. So that scares me a lot. I do think there are some positives that will come out of this. I think There are people who I think probably did take for granted physical interactions with people. I said before we jumped on, like the notion of social distancing is a misnomer. You know, it's physical distancing that we're supposed to be doing right now. And it's the social connections that I think are keeping people sane. But people now want the physical connections in a way that I think maybe we were mentally moving away from before. I think people are going to really crave that. And I think that will help drive the future economy. Yeah, I think. What you're saying in some ways is we'll hopefully all be more grateful for what we had that we want to get back to. And I'm hoping that that feeling of gratitude is it doesn't dissipate too quickly, right? It's like when we've all had near-death experiences and you're like for a day or two, you're like refocused and reoriented and like then you kind of get back into your crazy grind and routine and sometimes you forget what's most important in your life. It's interesting because 
there's a lot of shock around J. Crew filing for bankruptcy, just as an example, right? And I think that most consumers don't have a lot of information to understand that in every case is different. It doesn't necessarily mean if an organization either goes into bankruptcy or shutters, it doesn't mean that they were managing the business badly to begin with. And it doesn't mean that they were frail. Some businesses can only just last so long before when you cut off their consumer base and their traffic, the cash reserves are gone, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that the business model or the company is being led in a bad way. Sometimes it does, but not always. Can you just touch on that a little bit? I, mean, I could be wrong in, in saying that, but I think that the surprise is due to lack of knowledge around, especially in retail. It's not necessarily that retail, like you live paycheck to paycheck, but it is delicate, right? Yeah. I believe that a lot of people who are not part of the industry or who maybe aren't even, maybe they're in the industry, but they're not in the part of the industry where they're looking at the, the finances of the business or the operations. You you see big companies and you think, wow. And I remember thinking this, you know, when I was younger, like that's a big company that have tons of money, you know, so how could anything go wrong? And maybe, you know, there are companies like that, but very few of them at this point are restaurants or retail. I mean, retail and restaurants often operate on thin margins. So even if they have cash, they rely on cash coming in every single day to continue to maintain that reserve. So for Tender Greens, for example, you know, we were a profitable company. We had some cash in the bank. We were not relying on that cash for anything because it was a safety net for us, but we were making money on a daily basis and, and making money allowed us to pay all of our bills and maybe set a little aside but that was it. So when you're hit by a situation where business within a week drops by 70%, for us, it's slowly been creeping back up because we do have a healthy delivery and to-go business. A lot of fine dining doesn't, retail doesn't. So we were, were able to sort of pick back up and make enough money to pay some of our bills. But basically, if you are in the retail business, you have a massive amount of payroll because if you're large you have you know hundreds or thousands of employees that you're paying and if you're retail you're paying for what we call occupancy costs so that's lease expenses and the additional pain of what's going on right now is we are just coming out of one of the biggest boom times in history so what i was dealing with 2 months ago was the highest development in occupancy costs i've ever seen in my career and what that means is construction costs to build something out and the rent payments I need to make for a space because it was so incredibly competitive. So you sign these leases, you make these deals in times like that, suddenly things grind to a halt. Grind to a halt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you're still obligated to pay for all of these things. And you have no revenue coming in. And that money gets burned through what we call in the industry cash burn. It gets burned through really, really quickly. And you could just run out. I mean, it's it doesn't matter how big you are. The bigger you are, the higher your expenses are. We're going to stop here just for a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, so just picking up on that, you moved pretty quickly, though, to diversify your services, right? So like you said, there's a percentage of what you do that's, you know, pickup or delivery, but you needed to offset the attrition from people coming in, dining in, right? And you moved towards, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, I guess I'm just calling them grocery boxes. So people who for one reason or another, because there's so much hoarding going on right now, or they don't want to, they can't leave their house, they don't feel comfortable leaving their house. 
you were able to pull together and put together these essentials, daily essentials and food products for them and deliver them to them. Yeah. So as much as I like to think about our consumers on a daily basis, and I think my team likes to think about our consumers on a daily basis and what their needs are, I think it's something that we do as part of our job. This particular situation was very self-serving in that suddenly we were saying we need these things and we can't get into grocery stores or when we do, the shelves are empty. And so it was really in thinking about the fact that we needed things and our customers probably did too, that it occurred to us that in addition to this challenge that we're experiencing, there's another whole layer of challenges happening at the people whose entire businesses are based on supplying restaurants, right? So our business ground to mostly a halt because people weren't able to dine anymore. But anybody who sells goods to restaurants, they have no outlet for that. So it was really in a meeting where we put those two things together and said, can we help our consumers? Can we help ourselves? And can we help our farmers and small business partners to create a direct path for them to get those products to the customer? And it was really within a 24-hour period that we created this idea of what we were calling grocery goods. And, you know, we have seven different boxes today, but the first one was something that was called the Scarborough Farms Farm Box. And it's just literally a cardboard box. It says Scarborough Farms on it, but it's a bunch of various lettuces that were plucked out of the ground that day. They're put in a box. When you get it, there's still dirt on them because these farmers, I mean, they're planting these fields months in advance. I mean, they can't suddenly tell the lettuce to pause. You know, they've, it's still growing and they've still got to pick it and it's got to go somewhere. And they, they're farmers all around the country throwing things away. Yeah, we belong to, and my wife runs our local CSA. And we've done it for like six, seven years now. Save for the fact that, you know, it just forces me to eat more vegetables, which I have nothing against vegetables other than the fact that it's not the first thing I think about <laughs> when I want to eat, right? But I have nothing against them. But when you go down the line and you realize how you're keeping these farmers in business, and you're also, quite frankly, reducing body burden on you and others because you're putting unprocessed foods into people's bodies, right? And then that goes into the healthcare system and, and all that kind of stuff, right? It just makes you feel so much better. And I remember the first time when we signed up, my wife brought home this lettuce and it literally sat on our counter for months because we had so much of it and it looked the same because it wasn't on some truck for months before it went to a grocery store. That's right, right. that's right. Yeah, no, that you know, that's a great, great point. We don't even point that out very often, but yeah, when something comes straight to the farm to you, there's a whole travel time that you're not having to take on when you buy something at the grocery store. No offense to the grocery store, but yeah, there's there's that travel time. Well, and I think you're also reminding your customer that who you buy from is as important as anything else, right? That's a core value proposition for Tender Greens, right? You're not ordering primarily from Cisco with this big... With no, S we're not. SY, right, with this big truck coming in. And there's a local smaller company called Ace Endico around me. Big shout out to them. And we started ordering from them. And their primary customer before this was restaurants and restaurant owners, right? And I thought, I'm like, wow, this pork chop is the most delicious restaurant quality <laughs> pork chop I've ever had. And I said to my wife, I'm like, you know, this might just change forever, interestingly, in a good way, as long as, and I think they're going to keep this program, like, why wouldn't I once a month get a fresh meat and produce, you know, delivery from right. them to offset right. whatever it is, right? Because I know where they're sourcing from as well versus going to my grocery store. So I think it's interesting. It's a win, win, win. You know, you're, you're helping your supply chain, you're totally. giving light to it, and you're also helping consumers and you're helping to keep your employees employed, which is also just as important right now. All of those things. I mean, 
who you order from is important. What you order is important. We wouldn't be able to have made this pivot if we were, and I, I, I don't want to be critical of anyone else, but we wouldn't be able to make this pivot if the majority of our menu was processed foods, right? Like we don't buy any processed foods. Every single thing we make, we make from scratch each day. So these whole foods show up for us. We make them into something and then we're selling plates and salads, et cetera. So for us to say, we're taking in these whole foods and now we're just reselling them. It's a lot easier than, you know, if I were to have to go find a new supply for something. We, these were suppliers we already had. This is fresh product we already had. And let's just talk about pre-COVID for a second, because I know that you personally, before you joined Tender Greens, but also at Tender Greens, are a very large advocate for gender parity when it comes to pay and also comes to recruiting and employment and positions and roles and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about your work at Tender Greens in that vein, but also in general, why you chose that? It's a very important topic. I know there's so many that you can that you can look at, but was there a personal reason? Was there an experience that you had? Can you, you can kind of talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So like I mentioned, my undergrad is in social psychology. And I don't think, by the way, that I've talked about undergrad this many times in an hour, probably since like five years after graduating. So I just, I don't know what's going on right now. But Which is five years ago, right? Which, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. Five years ago after I graduated. So I've always been really interested in what drives people. And part of social psychology studies is the study of gender psychology. And as somebody who personally never really felt like I fit into gender stereotypes, I think it was probably particularly interesting to me. One of the things that really drew my attention even back then was that people behave in ways that they're incented to behave and the motivations and incentives are around us at all times, right? So there they can be subtle, they could be more dramatic. And so it's always sort of been in my head that people can kind of you know, I mean, we all have our limits in terms of like our intellectual ability and sort of the, the things that we're grown up exposed to. But other than that, kind of the sky's the limit. Like anybody can do anything. It's just a matter of like putting your head to doing it, surrounding yourself with people who support you in doing it, and then just getting there. So it really struck me in business whenever I'd come across things that seemed very gender stereotyped, like, wow, that's sort of interesting. Like that's not necessarily happening naturally. There's some sort of mechanism that is affecting these things. So that's always been kind of on my mind. Some industries, it's more obvious than others. And joining the restaurant industry, probably about a week in is when the whole Me Too movement really, you know, exploded. And you you probably had that Mario Batali storyline come out right around the same time, right? That you joined. It was exactly the same time. I mean, it was like, The entertainment industry and the restaurant industry, both very, very big players in the Me Too movement. And I think I'd been at Tender Greens maybe two weeks and I visited every restaurant and I'd looked around and I was like, wow, the people who run our restaurants are called executive chefs. And at all restaurants, there's an executive chef. Different kinds of restaurants may have managers and in retail stores, you may have general managers. But for us, the executive chef is sort of the person who's in charge of the food and the people. They're executive chef and they're the general manager of the business. And most of them were men, which was definitely not the case at Dry Bar. And it was a lot more balanced at other places I worked. And, you know, I learned pretty quickly afterwards that even though we had significantly more men chefs than women, we were still, our statistics were significantly more even than than in other restaurants. So I sort of made it part of my mission to create the kind of environment where everyone would feel like they could thrive and grow. 
And this is, you know, again, a world away, but this was the lowest unemployment in history. So finding talent was extremely hard, is incredibly competitive. And in my view, any scenario that made somebody with a qualified candidate less interested in the role was putting us at a disadvantage. And this was proven out because we had this goal in the beginning of 2019 to have complete gender parity at all management levels of the restaurant by the end of 2020. We achieved that result before 2020 even started. And it was just a matter of creating an opportunity, making this available, letting everyone in the company know that this was important to us. And if you really wanted to be a sous chef or a restaurant manager or an executive chef to raise your hand, we would help support you and help you grow. This wasn't in any way an initiative to reduce men's opportunity to you know, achieve these roles. I think the kind of environment we're creating was actually a lot more enriching and satisfying to even most of the men who wanted to be in these roles because the old school restaurant male thing is very machismo. And I think a lot of people don't like it, but it's just been such a predominant culture for so long that it really requires, you know, for me, it's like it required a force in the opposite direction just to break it down to create an even playing field. My idea would be that once you get parity, you can actually let nature take its course. But until there's that parity, you're going to always have this dynamic that's pushing up against something. Right. And in order to achieve parity, you need to be deliberate, like you said, right? And even if it feels like you're over-indexing, you're not, because if you're not deliberate, it'll never happen, right? Well, there's a force pushing in one direction very strongly. You need an opposing force just as strong just to get it to be balanced. And then again, and then you can like back off and let nature take its course. But if there's a dynamic that exists that prevents that from happening, you have to be deliberate. And it's hard because it's not just operational. Operational is the outcome, but cultural is what you're trying to change, right? That's right. And so gender parity in terms of representation is one thing. I'm going to assume that when it came to pay, that was not an issue, that that had already been solved, right? At least when it comes to tender greens, or did you have to also kind of tweak that and fix that as well? Well, of course, we pay the women a lot less than we pay the men. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I mean, <laughs> I was like, gasp for a second there. I was like, what? <laughs> right. Because no, I just want people to understand there's two, they're, they're two are very important, but they're not the same. No, they're not the same. So for me, it's there's a pretty clear formula here you create jobs, you create expectations for those jobs, responsibilities for those jobs, and then you hire qualified people to do those jobs. And each of those jobs should be associated with a salary range. And that salary range is just based on you know, a competitive index of a salary range. So, I mean, if, if you're doing things that scientifically, like here's the role, here are the job requirements for the role, here's the description, and here's what the job pays, you create an environment where anybody who's energized or motivated and ambitious can have the opportunity to have that job, there should be no issues. And I know that's simplifying something that can be much more complicated, but a job should have a pay range associated with it, period. I don't even know how you get into the mess of equity and pay if you're saying that a, jo a certain job pays a certain amount. Like, I, I don't know how that even happens. Well, and the, and the way to avoid that is to be as transparent as possible, right? Like you said. Totally. Transparency is your ultimate weapon in that. It's, it's interesting. I, about a couple months ago, I had the founder and CEO of a flower delivery service called Farm Girl Flowers, which is actually based in the Bay Area, Christina Stumble. And She's incredible. And she talked about the gender disparity and power in the flower industry. 
Wow. Which I had, I had no idea. It's mostly, it's very male dominated. And a lot of the farms that you're buying from are run by men who only want to sell to men. And it's 2020 and it still happens. I know. We talk quite a bit about that. And then on top of that, she's in the Valley, right? And there's a whole another layer of kind of hubris and power and genderized, you know, systems and structures inside of Silicon Valley as well, which, and you're, you're in San Francisco, right? No, I'm in LA. Oh, you're in LA. Sorry. So, I'm in LA. okay. But you, you kind of get, oh yeah, no, no. I, yeah, I was at Apple. I, I lived in the Bay area for 15 years. Yeah. So it was just so interesting to me. And, you know, part of me feels like, oh, it's 2020. And then you look at us women's soccer and the battle that they're, that they shouldn't have to fight to, for equal pay. And it's, and we still have a long way to go, right? It's kind of mind boggling. And do you feel like at some point you, I mean, you don't have the time now, especially if you want to get back to karaoke, but (laughs) at some point, at some point, do you feel like you want to take it on for the broader industry? I mean, you are by setting an example, but there's a whole another layer and level of, you know, from an industry standpoint, getting some of your, you know, your colleagues and other peers inside of the restaurant industry as well to sign on to this. Yeah, I mean, at the time when we really started this effort, I was really excited because I thought not only are we doing this and it's going to be the right thing to do and we're going to have great talent and and lower turnover and all of those things, which has happened. We're going to have this sort of strategic advantage because anybody else who's not doing it, who doesn't see it as a strategy or a way to sort of drive growth for the company isn't going to get it. And Eventually, people will pick it up, and it'll be one of those things that starts to have its own sort of grassroots movement because unemployment was so low, and and people are going to start saying, well, what's the secret to your success? And I'm going to say gender parity and some version of that. Given the current state of the world, I'm not sure what the world of employment looks like. I think it's going to be rough for a while. But obviously, there's there's going to be jobs for qualified people, but I, but I think there's going to be a lot of qualified people who are going to have a hard time getting a job for a while. But a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is something that's always been important to me. It's also always been important to me to embed it in the work I'm doing versus having it be an offshoot because I've always felt that maybe people in business have more credibility around these topics than somebody who's talking about them in a way that just comes across as maybe self-serving or sure, that's easy to do because you don't actually you know, have to manage a business or, you know, so I talk about it a lot with other CEOs. I've had several different sort of dinners and parties and events where we celebrate the success of this and we talk about the value of it. And I, and I'd like to think it's influenced a lot of people, but I don't think I would, and I'm not even sure if this is what you're asking, but I'm not sure I would ever go um, into another arena to try and make this my mission, but I certainly will continue to talk about it on every podcast and and every (laughs) company dinner and, and every event we have. Am I correct in saying that Danny Meyer is a investor in Tender Greens? Yes, he he's an investor and a friend. And a friend. So the reason why I mentioned that, I actually, for my Forbes column, I wrote about Shake Shack recently in a positive way, talking about how they gave back the PPP. And I really link it back to his, and I'm a huge fan, and I admire him greatly and how he builds and runs businesses and leads people. But he has a strong value system and he is consistent and what I admire most is he recognized and or Shake Shack recognized that immediately that they made a mistake, they could find an alternative way to finance their operation to keep people employed and they gave it back. And they were the first ones to do that. And it created, thankfully, although not holistically, 
an effect of other restaurants doing the same, right? Where they might not have. So that's kind of what I was getting at. But I think having Danny Meyer, not just as a friend, but as an investor, is a huge competitive advantage, I guess is what I'm saying for Tender Greens, because he's one of the few guys out there, people out there, I should say, I should not genderize him either, who does stand up and is values-based. And I think that's important. He's been such a leader in terms of value-based thinking around everything from like gender parity to, you know, the sharing of tips right? to just broadly, you know, how the fact that, you know, how you treat people is going to have an impact on the success of your business. I mean, I think he's been really at the forefront of that from the beginning. And I, and I really value that I've had the opportunity to get to know him since I've been at Tender Greens because he's, he's a true leader in that way. Yeah. And I think, and my guess is that one of the many reasons why you arrived at Tender Greens a few years ago is because of the values. It's because of the view towards how you treat people, how you serve people, how you create that experience, how you source your food. What do you think will change indefinitely post-COVID-19 for Tender Greens in a good way? What is it that you've learned that, and I'm just trying to see the world through kind of a more positive aperture right now that will continue post COVID-19. I can't say there's going to be a lot of change in terms of the culture, which is, is a very good thing. I think because we've always had a very respectful, passionate culture where we really value what people bring and we're all friends. We all get along. I think we we have a very family-like environment at our headquarters and in each of our restaurants. So I'd like to think and hope none of that will change. Everybody will kind of get through this and we'll all be back together. We have had to lay off a lot of people. Hopefully we'll all be back together and have the same sort of playful, respectful environment we had before. What will change is we're learning a lot about our consumer right now. We're also you know, getting new guests every single day because these groceries are appealing to people who maybe didn't even understand what Tender Greens was before. And I think the beauty of us sort of somebody learning about us through a grocery box is that like, wow, these people have access to fresh, delicious groceries. This must be what their food is made from. And so for us, there's a little bit of a Trojan horse quality to like, yeah, this all these delicious ingredients, this is what we use daily to to make the food that we serve. So I'm hopeful that the message around whole food, good food, real food, sourcing quality, to your point, the the time from the the farm to your table, all of that, I think, I'm hoping will have more meaning to people and that we'll be able to continue to use aspects of that even in in the new world. I don't know if we'll still have grocery boxes per se, but we may have, we may, we may have certain items that we weren't selling before this. I do think it's a genius. And I think, and I say this not in a capitalistic way but in so many other ways that what you're doing to your point is you're literally taking the customer through the kitchen to like the storeroom or the freezer and you're showing them exactly what you get before you start to prepare it. That's and exactly right. you know, what, when I was in high school, I worked at this Blimpies. I, <laughs> I, it's, an, it's so funny because for years I would put in my resume that I was responsible for sandwich assembly and I was the delivery boy. Like, talk about a PR spin. And if I could describe to you what that room looked like, and it did not look like tender greens, <laughs> you would never ever step into that establishment. Just me describing to you how I made the tuna without gloves on and this up to my elbows and just, you know, 
It's yeah. insane. And we've come a long way. So I love the fact that you're shining a light on the true you and how when things get back to whatever the new normal is, this is what we're serving you. It just takes a different form and we're helping to make it delicious for you. But this is it. Right. It's this exact food being prepared by an extremely talented executive chef. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. So this podcast has made me hungry, even though I just ate. <laughs> I'm hoping that everyone who's listening, when we get back to normal times, and even in the in-between, I'm calling it the in-between, not the upside down, the in-between, that people do patronize tender greens, either through pickup or takeout through one of your partners, and that they also try to get one of these grocery boxes if they can access that, depending on the location they're in. And I appreciate you and how generous you've been with your time today. It's great to meet you. And next time in LA, hopefully we can have a meal together at Tender Greens. Yes, let's do that for sure. That would be great. Thanks again. Great to be here. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Thank you.